Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? If you got your Bible, I want you to pull it out open to Luke chapter 17. I have a topic that I think is going to interest a lot of you this weekend, and that is the subject of the end times. Uh, it seems like every few years uh, there is a new cycle of uh, excitement or enthusiasm over somebody thinking they've figured out when the end times are going to be. There's actually one that's kind of out being talked about right now, which I'll address at one point here in our, our message this, uh, this morning. Uh, but uh, just something on a lot of people's minds. Even the Mayans have gotten in on it next year. Uh, 2012 is, is their, uh, their year. And, uh, you know, for people who are not Christians, this is one of the very reasons they think that we're all crazy. Uh, and I would tend to agree with them because I'm going to show you some things about what, um, what, what Jesus said about that that really just kind of make you wonder what in the world some people are thinking. Um, I, you know, it's something, though, that even though some people think it's crazy, other people are really interested in it. I always heard that if you wanted to get a lot of people to come to your church, you, you preached about either, number one, sex, or number two, the end times. And if you really wanted to blow the roof off the place, you preached about sex in the end times. Uh, and so we're going to look at what Jesus had to say about that. Uh, not sex in the end times, but the end times. Uh, so again, if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 17, and I will personally guarantee you before you leave this morning that you will know exactly when Jesus is coming back and whether or not you're excited about that or not, Okay. Uh, not really. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, do not worry about that because one day I will raise up my servant Tim LaHaye and he will write those left behind books and he will explain everything to you. Uh, and even if you don't want to read the books, I'll raise up my other servant, Kirk Cameron, who will act them out in movie form. Uh, and they said the guy from Growing Pains and he said yes. Uh, verse 21. The kingdom of God, however, is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some of the translations of the Bible that some of you may hold right there may say the kingdom of God is within you. If your Bible says that, you have my permission to take out a pen and mark that out. Technically, the Greek words there could be translated within you, that is true, but Jesus would never have said that to the Pharisees. His favorite term for them was sons of the devil. So for him to turn around and say the kingdom of God is within you is not something he would say to the Pharisees. So another way you could translate those words, which is, in my opinion, the correct translation, is the kingdom of God is among you or in the midst of you. Now, what's he talking about? Right, what's he talking about? Well, who is in the midst of them? What is in the midst of them? He is in the midst of them. So when he says the kingdom of God is within you, he is saying the kingdom of God is me. He was the essence of the kingdom. You see, they were looking for the kingdom as something kind of out there, something coming in the clouds, a big political smackdown, cosmic smackdown, where, you know, the Messiah would ride in on a, on a white horse with a lightsaber, slaying all the bad guys, and moon turn into blood. And Jesus doesn't deny that there are going to be some spectacular elements of the Messiah's ultimate coming, but he says, guys, you sort of missed the point. The point is, I am the kingdom. I am the essence of the kingdom, and to know me is to enter into the kingdom. The most important part of the kingdom of God is knowing Jesus. And when you know Jesus, the kingdom enters into your life. Now, there are certain dimensions of the kingdom which are still awaiting fulfillment in the future, but in him, in knowing him, you get the beginning of it. You see, the kingdom works on what theologians call the already not yet principle. 
The already not yet principle. That's not just something for seminary students to know. That is very important for you to know. Because there is a dimension of the kingdom that is already. And then there is another dimension that is not yet. And people who know Jesus live right in that period of having an already sense with the kingdom and then a not yet sense. Over the last few weeks, I've explained to you that the kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite analogy for that was a party. A party. Um, a party. When Jesus' kingdom is restored, it is going to be the party of all parties. He chose the image of a party because we love parties. I mean, we love parties because we're creating the image of God and God loves parties. And he's saying in the kingdom of God, every one of your, your heart's deepest desires, they're going to be fulfilled, right? So the kingdom of God is like a party. Not yet are we in that ultimate party. However, when you know Jesus, that party, that festival, that feast begins in your life right now. One of the big criticisms of Christianity is that it's all pie in the sky. Let me just you know, be really clear. It is pie in the sky. It's a better tasting pie than you've ever tasted in your life. But it's not just pie in the sky. You also get a little slice of that pie right now. Already not yet. When Jesus, what Jesus did through his miracles was he gave us pictures and signs of what his kingdom reign would look like one day, but those same miracles also had an implication for us right at the moment. For example, he healed the lame, he opened blind eyes, he raised the dead. What do those things show you? Well, they show you that in his kingdom one day, there would be no more blindness. There would be no more lameness, no sorrow, no death. He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish so that there were 12 baskets left over. But what does that show you? It shows you one day in his kingdom there will be no hunger. But it also shows you that for right now, those people who feast on Jesus have a never-ending supply of the bread of life in their souls. Right? So there is a dimension of the miracle that is not yet, but there's also a dimension that is already right now. Contrary to what some people will tell you, the point of Jesus' miracles was not that from that point on, he would heal all the blind and all the sick whenever they named and claimed it in Jesus' name. Now, he's going to do that one day. You're not even going to need to name and claim it. He will have just healed everything. He wiped away every tear and healed every disease. That's in his coming kingdom. But right now, he does that, even more importantly, in our souls. I'll give you an example. Luke chapter 8. It's just a miracle we skipped over in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 8 talks about Jesus being out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He's asleep in the front of the boat, and a terrible storm comes up. The storm is so bad that all the disciples think they're going to drown. Now, that's pretty significant when you consider the fact that they're professional fishermen. They've been around storms all their lives. So they think they're going to drown. This was a bad storm. So they wake Jesus up in the midst of this crisis, and they say, don't you care that we're going to perish? Which has to constitute, by the way, as the dumbest question ever asked of Jesus. He's like, are you kidding me? Do, do I not care that you perish? I was born in a manger, came to die on a cross. Yes, I care that you perish, all right? So, so they ask him that. They wake him up, and I love, it, you know, the whole miracle in, in Luke only takes like three verses. Um, Jesus stands up, and in just the most matter-of-fact way, he doesn't say a word to the disciples, stands up, and it says that he rebukes the wind and the waves. I love the word rebuke, because the word rebuke, you only use that with something that you control, right? Like my kids. If you and I are having a conversation and my kids are throwing things in the background or swinging from the chandelier, um, then I rebuke them. I say, cut it out. I'm trying to have a conversation. Jesus has that type of a relationship in Luke 8 with the wind and the waves. He stands up, wipes the sleep out of his eyes, and is like, cut it out! And it says, immediately they ceased. 
Not like, by the way, that the storm slowly died down, but this had to be something pretty amazing because the wind ceased and then the waters went completely flat and placid all in one kind of moment. Right? He, he rebuked them. Uh, in fact, it's almost like he turned off a car alarm. Uh, you know, somebody's car alarm's going off out here and you, you know, somebody walks out, they're kind of embarrassed, like, oh, sorry, that's my car. You know, they turn it off. Jesus did that with the storm. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, that's my storm, my geo storm. And he turns it off and the, and the things, and the things died. Right? That's what he does. Now, what is the meaning of that? What is the meaning of that miracle? Well, there's one meaning, and that is that one day in Jesus' kingdom, nature will no longer be a terror to us. We won't have to worry about tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and tsunamis and that kind of thing. That's one of the meanings. But the other meaning is that for those people who know Jesus right now, he calms the storm in our soul that comes from thinking life is out of control and there's a God who doesn't care about us. So there's an already sense of that miracle, and there is a not yet sense in, in that miracle, and that is where believers live. Knowing Jesus is to enter the kingdom of God, and you begin the already not yet relationship. Does that make sense? Some of you might remember Johnny Erickson Tata. Does that name sound familiar to you? 1976, she was a teenager. She broke her neck, um, broke her, her spi spinal cord, um, fatal, or not fatal, permanent injury in her spinal cord, but through a diving accident. Um, she talks in her autobiography, which I would highly encourage you to read. Um, she talks in there about how God used that accident to awaken her to God and bring her back to himself. Well, in her autobiography, she talks about the fact she was raised in a, in a pretty traditional church where they did a lot of kneeling in their church. And she always just went through the motions in it, never really paid any attention. She said, but after that wreck and after God awakened me to himself, she said, I went to church and the minister asked everyone to kneel. She said, for the first time in my life, I actually wanted to kneel. I wanted to be on my knees in front of Jesus to show him my appreciation. She said, and then it hit me. Never in my life would I be able to kneel before Jesus. She said, and I was overwhelmed with this sense of regret that before when I had knelt, I had not meant it. And now that I wanted to kneel, my knees would no longer do it. And then, quote, she writes, I remember the kingdom resurrection. Just before the party gets going in heaven, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on my resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, to kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to be on my feet dancing. Can you imagine the hope, she writes, that this gives someone with a permanent spinal cord injury? Can you imagine the hope this even gives to one who is manic depressive? No other religion promises new bodies, a new material universe, only in the gospel of Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. Her legs are still crippled. They are not yet healed, but her soul is already leaping and dancing. Her soul is in the kingdom, and one day her body will catch up. Do you get this? Already, not yet. Verse 22. Then Jesus says to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now Jesus has begun to refer to that coming of his kingdom when he does come with, with all the things that people think about when they think about the end of the world. The time when he punishes the bad guys and heals the earth. right? And he seems to understand, get this, that there's going to be a lot of claims that this is happening over the next 2,000 years or however long it is before he actually does this. A lot of people claim this. Religious leaders do this all the time. The new Messiah is here. His name is Mohammed. The new Messiah is here. His name is Joseph Smith. 
His name is David Koresh. His words categorically, listen, don't believe them. My second coming will not be a secret movement that you should wonder whether or not you have to join. Now, by the way, religious people are not the only ones who get caught up in this kind of hysteria. You got secular versions of this. Every so often a new politician comes along with a new political movement saying this is it. This is the answer to all the world's problems. This is going to restore peace. Scientists come along and say this kind of technology is now going to bring peace on earth. Educators will say it is this educational philosophy that is going to restore peace on earth. And Jesus says categorically, don't believe them. The real coming of the kingdom, the real king. There's a couple of adjectives. Actually, we'll give you four before the day is over that will describe his coming. Number one, sudden. Sudden, no advance warning. It's like lightning, he says. You don't see lightning coming. I remember in, in, in science class, that was one of the, in high school, learning that lightning doesn't even come from the top of the sky to the bottom. Right? It actually starts, you remember this, from you know, either side and meets in the middle. And you're like, well, I, you, know, you, don't, you don't have time to see that. It just happens all at once. You don't. You don't, lightning happens so fast, it's all of a sudden, and it's, um, you can't see it coming. Number two, unmistakable is the second word you would use to describe Jesus' coming. Unmistakable, like lightning. Somebody shows up in my house and says, I've got a sign of the kingdom of God. It's here. It's a three-headed donkey that I, you know, grew in my backyard. Now, in order for me to verify that, if they live in Cary, I've got to drive down to Cary, go into their house and look at it, Right? He says, that's not the way the kingdom of God's going to be. It's going to be like lightning. If lightning strikes in carry, then I could see it from here. He says, the kingdom of God is unmistakable, big, public. Everybody will see it and know it. The point, it's not a secret movement you might miss out on. Now, I want you to notice something really quick about this here, because if you're paying attention, then you might notice that Jesus almost seems to contradict himself. To the, to, to the Pharisees, he was like, you thought the kingdom of God was going to be big and spectacular, but you missed it because it was me right and then now he turns and says when the kingdom of god comes one day it is going to be big and spectacular nobody's going to miss it so why is he saying both things here's the point listen jesus is the only movement you ever need to join that's what he's telling you i'm the only movement you ever need to join i'm the only boundary can i tell you why that is important every cult says you got to join us or you're going to miss out oh oh you know jesus that's great you know Jesus? Yeah, well, you've also got to be a part of this. You get this other leader. You've got to be a part of this other denomination, this secondary movement. No! Jesus is the only movement. The only question is whether or not you're inside him or outside him. You say, well, you know, well, then why do you tell people to join a church? The local church is just a community of Jesus followers. A local church, we're not some secondary denomination that's gathered around something new a good church is just a group of people that are gathered around Jesus. You're not gathered around me. We're not gathered around a particular denomination. We're just a local church that's gathered around Jesus. That's what a good church is. Now you say, well, well why are you making such a big deal out of this? Because Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses' number one source of converts is still people in churches like this one. And this is the line they always use. They always say, oh, great, you know Jesus? Well, there's another leader that you've got to be a part of if you really want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And that's just wrong. Jesus continues, verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, this was the part, this was the mystery that everybody tripped over in Jesus' day. Because before he could bring the kingdom, he had to die. In order to bring the peace of God on earth, he had to first bring us to peace with God. 
And the way that he would do that would be by suffering and dying. He would take upon himself the wrath of God for our sins so that by doing so, he could remove the penalty of our sins and then change our hearts, create in our hearts a desire to be at peace with God. If he had not done that, then even if he had put peace on earth, we would not have been at peace and we would have turned heaven, the kingdom of God, into hell. That's why he had to do that first. Good. Let me give you another great example of this. Remember a second ago I referred to Luke chapter 8 with the, with, where Jesus steals the, the waters. And I told you there are two meanings of that miracle. One, one day he'll do that to the whole earth. For now he does it in you by, by restoring you to God and by you know, taking away the idea that God is angry at you and the storm of your life that's out of control and God doesn't care about you. All right, now, right after that miracle, a lot of people don't put this together, Jesus says to the audience, that he is going to give them the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what's significant about Jonah, and why would he bring him, him up there? Okay, well, think of it. You remember the story of Jonah from Sunday school, those of you that were in Sunday school? Even people who weren't in church know that Jonah is the guy swallowed by the, by the whale or the big fish. All right, so you remember, you remember what was happening when Jonah got in the place where he could be swallowed by the big fish? There was a storm, that's right. And you remember, everybody in the boat thought they were going to die. So what they do? They threw Jonah out of the boat. You remember this flannel graph, right? Out of the boat, he's bobbing in the water, and the fish comes up and, and eats him, right? Swallows him. And he's in the belly of the well, the belly of the big fish, for three days and three nights. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, it, just like in order for the storm in Jonah's time to be stilled, Jonah had to be thrown out of the boat and swallowed by a well for three days and three nights. I... I'm going to have to be, in order to calm the storm in your heart, I'm going to have to be crucified and buried for three days and three nights and then be resurrected. And that is what is going to bring the peace of God into your soul. He must suffer and die in order to bring about these peaceable things in the kingdom. Before Jesus could bring us into the kingdom of God, he had to bring the kingdom of God into us. And the way that he would do that is by dying for our sin by removing the penalty of our sin, and by creating us in us a heart that was at peace with God. Nobody got this in Jesus' day because nobody realized how wicked their hearts were and then why the problems in the world began in our hearts. And before God could calm the storms of destruction out there, he had to calm the one in here. All right, verse 26. He begins again to refer to the, to the, the to, to, again, to his coming kingdom. Verse 26. Just like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Third adjective that describes the second coming of the kingdom is the word unexpected. Unexpected. God had warned the people of Noah's day that he was going to send a flood, but he didn't tell them when. He just told them it was coming. They kind of forgot about it. In fact, if you go back and read the story of the flood, Genesis 7 tells you that at one point, before the first drop of rain had ever fallen, God tells Noah, it's time. I want you to go into the ark. You've warned people long enough. Nobody's listened. And God himself shut the door, and they were in there, Genesis 7, 10, for seven days. Seven days with a bunch of animals. You can imagine the odors. You can imagine the doubt as they're in there for seven days, and then... It says the rain began. It didn't begin gradually. You look at the way it's written. It says that all of a sudden it came. The floodgates from the earth burst open and the skies burst open. And by the time the first drop of rain hit the people's faces, it was entirely too late and the flood swept them away. 
He says that's how the kingdom of God is going to be. You don't get any advance warning. It's unexpected. You don't listen. Jesus said you don't get to know the day or the hour. Not even the angels know the day or the hour. And no matter how clearly he says this, some fool thinks he can figure it out. He finds some new way to read the Hebrew that if you squint your eyes just right, you know, and cross your eyes, you, you can see something in the Hebrew language that none of us have ever seen. When I was in high school, right, there was a book that came out, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988. Does anybody remember that book? Just out of here, raise your hand, all of our campuses, if you remember that book. Anybody? Wow, right here, okay, I, I see one. I, yes, I see that hand. All right, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Back in 1988. Um, I went to a Christian school, and the Christian school that I went to seemed particularly prone to, um, to, to things like this, and so it actually... It actually kind of took root a little bit, and people were reading it and passing it around, because I'll be honest with you, it was kind of convincing. The guy really had laid out some impressive reasons why Jesus was coming back in 1988, and he had it limited down to three days. Three days. And he, I remember him say, in the book it said, Jesus told us we couldn't know the day or the hour, so I've got it down to three days. We don't know which of those days is right, but we know it's one of those three. So on the third day, when Jesus still hadn't come, and, hadn't come back, um, our soccer coach I remember sits us all down right before dusk because we were finishing up practice. He said, well, uh, Jesus is supposed to come back today. You know, that's what everybody thinks. So we're just going to sit here and wait for him. The last 15 minutes, we're just going to sit here and wait until the sun goes down. And then he, he looks at me and he says, J.D., if that actually happens, will you make sure everything gets cleaned up and put back in the, in the thing? And I said, I said, yes, I will. And uh, we sat there for 15 minutes in silence. And then he said, well, I'll see you guys tomorrow. All right. The guy comes out the next year with a book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Is Coming Out in 1989. And I said he'd made a mistake. There's one right now. Some of you have heard about this. May 21st or 22nd, uh, one of the two days um, next week of the 2011, a guy has predicted. And it's actually got a kind of a big following as to why we're sure Jesus is coming back on May 21st or 22nd. Um, he's, he's got this big billboard tour, an RV tour. By the way, number one sign the guy is not telling you the truth is he has an RV tour, okay? Um, RV tour across America. Came to North Carolina um, and, and is telling everybody that Jesus is coming back. By the way, can you imagine what worship is like in his church this morning? You people better worship like this is the last Sunday you ever get because it is, you know, so but that's going on. That's going on. Now, what's interesting is the same guy predicted it in 1994. Well, when 1994 came and went, he's like, I made a miscalculation. I, I forgot. I've got to carry the one, you know, or, or something like that. And, and, and he blew it. Now, you know what's going to happen on May 23rd. He's going to come out and be like, oh, I forgot, you know, the logarithm. I didn't mix in here. And it was something in Hebrew I, I didn't get. Jesus is telling you, no, no, it's all, that's all false. That's all wrong. He says, you can't know the day or the hour. It's like the flood. He told you it's coming, but he didn't tell you exactly when it was going to be. The coming is sudden. It's unexpected. Verse 28, likewise, just like it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The same thing here. What, what strikes you is how normal life seems to be when the judgment comes and sweeps people away. It doesn't say, by the way, that the people of Noah's day or Sodom's day, it doesn't say they didn't believe in God. Just that the imminence of his coming was out of their mind. On one level, on one level, it sounded so strange to them that they scoffed. They're like, what? Noah, seriously? 
the floodgates of the earth are going to burst open and the sky is going to drop water. We're all going to drown. You're building an ark to float around now for 40 days. Yeah, whatever. Like, a lot, like, seriously, fire and sulfur from the sky. Yeah, we've seen it rain. We've never seen it rain, fire, and sulfur. Isn't that the same thing today? The judgment of God seems so out of the specter of normal reality that people can't comprehend there's a real heaven and a real hell. And then when somebody closes their eyes in death, they either awaken to eternal bliss in the presence of God or eternal punishment in hell. It just seems so far out of the specter of normal life that people scoff at it. It's so unreal. And Jesus says it was unreal to them too. But the fact that they didn't perceive it doesn't mean that it wasn't real. The other dimension here is that, is that they just got busy with what they thought was more impressive, more, excuse me, more pressing things in life. Eating and drinking and marriage and anything wrong with those things? No. They're all good things. It's just that they kept people really from paying any attention, giving any weight to what God had said. I told you this a few weeks ago, but more people, listen, more people miss the kingdom of God through neglecting it than through rejecting it. I've seen it now as a pastor for 10 years. More people miss the kingdom of God by neglecting it than by rejecting it. They just never give it the weight. They, they think that, that things like marriage or deciding what major you're going to go into or what job you're going to get or where you're going to live, those are all great things, but do you understand how weighty and how important this thing is if it's true? A few weeks ago, we looked at the reasons that people didn't come to Jesus' party that he was throwing it. Were bad reasons? There were things like, I'm getting married and I'm, I'm buying real estate. And he said, the problem is you don't give the kingdom of God the weight in your life. You know, when, when you really think about it, this doesn't make much sense. One of my favorite authors, a 17th century philosopher named Blaise Pascal, wrote a book called The Poincet. And in there, he talks about, about, about just really learning to see life in the right perspective. He said, it doesn't make any sense that people, whether or not they believe in God, they don't ever pay any attention to the fact that the one thing we know is true about life is that we're going to die. He said, imagine you were in a room, and in that room, every few minutes, this monster, this savage beast comes in, grabs one person seemingly randomly, mauls them to death in front of your eyes, and then drags their corpse out. And then another few minutes, he comes in and grabs another one and does the same thing, and you're watching this, and it is apparent that he is going to systematically do that to everybody in the room. And so you just don't pay any attention to it. You go on distracting yourself with how much you're enjoying being in the room. He's like, that monster is your death. It's like, we know that everybody's going to die. Why would we not pay attention to the one thing we knew was true of life? And then he gives another metaphor. He said, he said it's like you're in, a, in his day, a horse-drawn carriage, and you're barreling toward the edge of a cliff. You know the edge of the cliff is coming, but you just don't want to think about it, so you distract yourself with the trees and the bushes and the scenery and how pretty it is outside so that you don't have to think about that cliff that is coming. That cliff is your death. Whether or not you believe in God is a secondary kind of question on this one. Why would you not give this the weightiest importance? I asked you this a few weeks ago. If what the Bible says about heaven is true and what the Bible says about hell is true, do you understand that these things matter more than everything? And yeah, things like marriage, they even come secondary to this. This is the most important question you will ever, ever answer. Verse 31. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them back. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. 
Jesus told his disciples to do the opposite of what the people of Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah did. He said, live every, every second of your lives focused on the coming kingdom. Live every second of your lives with the imminence of eternity in my coming pressing in on your heart because it could break through at any moment. It might come in your death or it might come through my coming. But either one will take you away from this life and into the presence of eternity forever. So that's number four word he used to describe. The fourth word he used to describe his kingdom. Imminent. Imminent. You should be ready at any moment to meet God. And then he's also saying here, your life should be light and mobile and focused on eternity and not super attached to things here and now. Your life really ought to be light and mobile as the imminence of eternity presses in on it so you're not really super attached to things here and now. Can I make kind of a dramatic statement to you? But I really, really believe this. Listen, if the return of Jesus is not imminent in your mind, your attitude toward everything down here will be wrong. If the return of Jesus is not imminent to your mind, then your attitude toward everything down here will be wrong. I read a book recently on, on, on the Apostle Paul, his letters, his writings. In every single one of Paul's letters, every one, he brings up the second coming of Jesus multiple times. He ties every major moral command of his writing to the imminence of Jesus coming. L let, me give you a let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll put it on the screen for you. 1 Corinthians 7. One of the most confusing and one of my new favorite passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as, this, as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. What on earth does he mean? Let those of us who have wives live like we did not. Is that like his version of a hall pass that he's saying? No, of course not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying whatever situation you're in, you need to realize how temporary it is. Whatever situation you're in, you need to realize how temporary it is because people, listen, tend to treat their situation in life like it is so final. You get one shot down here, so you better get all you can because whatever you don't get this time around, you're never going to get a chance of again. You got one shot to be married. You got one shot to experience the beauties of this world. So we make bucket lists. If I don't do this now, I'm never going to get a chance to do it again. I've showed you this several times through this series. Jesus' kingdom was not an ethereal experience where you sit up on a cloud, sipping a tasteless margarita, strumming an out-of-tune harp. It was a resurrection. It was a real resurrection. So what Jesus' miracles showed you, right? He showed you the way the kingdom was going to be. And the miracles weren't showing you as a disembodied spirit. He was showing you creation at its fullest. So the same thing with his resurrection. I told you when he resurrected, they could see him, they could touch him, they could recognize him. He could eat fish. He enjoyed eating fish. He could also walk through walls. He was not less alive. He was more alive. So what Paul is saying is that whatever you miss out on down here is insignificant because the real version of it, you'll get in eternity. That's why bucket lists don't make much sense for Christians. Some of you are really depressed because you're single. You're like, well, I had one shot to get married, and I didn't get it. 
Or some of you are like, even you're at a point now in your life where you're like, even if I get married now, I miss the best years of my life and I was single during those. Some of you are in a bad marriage right now and you're like, the one shot I had to enjoy love on this earth, I didn't get it. And now I'm bitter against my husband or my wife because they took that from me. Paul says, no. No, let him with a wife or her with a husband be like the one who has not, mentally speaking. And the one without one needs to think like one who does have one, he says, because the real version of that in eternity is something that all believers are going to experience. That's why when Jesus compares his second coming, he chooses a marriage feast. Now, we don't even know what all this stuff means, but it's a real marriage feast with real food where you drink real wine and you are being held by real arms and you're experiencing everything that marriage is a dull symbol of here, you get it in its fulfillment and its reality up there. So what that means is the fact that you miss out on it down here really is not that significant because eternity is very close to us. And when that is real to you, you won't look wistfully at things and be bitter because you miss them. I was talking with somebody recently who told me that they were bitter because they'd had a, a childhood where their parents screwed it up. Their parents didn't love them. And like, that was my one shot to know what a father's love and a mother's love was like. And of course, when you look at it in this light, you're like, no, that was just a symbol. It was a dull symbol of what a real father was like, but you will experience in eternity. Yo, I think that one of the things that keeps us from really being able to sacrifice and focus on eternity is this idea that we only get one chance of the world. And whatever we don't get this time around, we lose forever. So we got to eat, pray, love. I got to eat, pray, because I only get one shot at it. I got to see the Alps. I got to see the Alps before I die. Because, you know, if I don't see the Alps this time around, then I'm never going to get to see the Alps. I got to see the Grand Canyon. I'm going to be up in heaven, you know, sitting on that stupid cloud, drinking that, you know, that tasteless drink, and I'm going to be strumming that out of tune heart. <laughs> Yo, listen, if Jesus' resurrected body was recognizable, you could touch it, right? You could see it. It could taste fish, but it was supercharged so it could walk through walls. What's the resurrected version of the Alps look like? What's the resurrected version of the Grand Canyon look like? One of our elders <laughs> told me this week that on his bucket list was seeing the space shuttle launch. So last week he took a trip down to Cape Canaveral to see the space shuttle launch. And then they canceled it because the Russians were doing it on the other side of the world. Right? So I told him, I was like, don't worry about that. You know what I mean? We'll get to heaven. I, I mean, we may not even need space shuttles up there. We could, maybe we could fly to the moon. You come watch me take off. That's what I told him. You watch me take off to the moon, and that'll be the fulfillment of that. What's on your list of things you have to experience before you die? I got to have a wife. Got to have kids. I want to own a home. I want to have a house at the beach. I want to skydive. I want to own a Porsche. I want to take the Lord of the Rings tour in New Zealand. I want to run with the Bulls. I want to streak in the Super Bowl. I want to throw eggs at Justin Bieber. What's on your bucket list? what's on there you see could listen could you not be content could you not be content to make eternity your obsession and not be obsessed with what you're missing out on down here because you know that in the resurrection the ultimate party the ultimate kingdom everything you miss on down here is not made up for by simply giving you a bunch of gold and rewards in heaven that you actually experience the fullness of it that's why I say a bucket list doesn't make a whole lot of sense for a Christian because we got it all up there. I don't have to be obsessed with it down here. The only thing on your bucket list, the only thing on your bucket list, the one thing that you cannot do in eternity that you can do here is bring people to Jesus. That's the only thing. I get one shot at my family. 
We get one shot at this community. We get one shot at the unreached people groups in the world. I cannot do that in eternity. So it makes more sense for somebody who understands this to take their resources and not be obsessed with trying to obtain things that they got one shot to obtain, but to instead pour them out for the one thing they can never do again in eternity. I'll get to experience all the glories of creation one day. So I don't, I'm not obsessed with what I'm missing out on down here. Paul tells you every single part of your life has to be read through the imminence of Jesus' return. I've got a list of like 10 other things that I'm just not going to, let me give you one more, all right? Pain. When Paul talks about pain, well, what does he say? Paul doesn't say to your pain, it's not real. Spirit-filled people don't feel pain. Name it, claim it. No, he says your pain is real, but then he compares it to labor pains and says you need to see the pain now in light of eternity, and the pain now is to eternity what labor pains are to birth. Labor pains are real. I don't know that personally, right? And I think it's really dumb when guys say that my wife and I are pregnant. No, you weren't pregnant. She was pregnant. You were not. You watched her, right? My, I've watched my wife go through that time of labor. It was real. It was painful. But it's interesting now because now, even after that 18-hour labor ordeal on our first kid, she still has to ask me what it was like during that time because she can't hardly remember it because he gets swallowed up immediately in the joy of the child that's born, right? So what he's saying is your pain is real, but when you look at it through the lens of eternity, it just seems very, very temporary. So in the midst of your pain now, he said, hang on to what will be swallowed up in eternity when, when it takes everything and makes all the sad things in your life come untrue. Everything in your life ought to be read through the lens of eternity. Verse 32. He begins these warnings. Watch this. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Who, who was Lot's wife? You, you remember, this, again, Sunday school. Fire and brimstone coming down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his wife and his family are fleeing to the hills. Lot's wife turns around, looks back at Sodom. Now, why is she doing that? Forget to lock the door, leave the oven on. Is that, is that it? No, at that point, that doesn't matter. Evidently, she's wistfully looking back at Sodom, wishing she could have some of the things she had there. And what happens to her? She turned into a pillar of salt. That's right. Salt in the Bible is a metaphor for spiritual death. He's like, Saul, Lot's wife spiritually died because she was so attached to things here. You will pour salt into your soul when you are attached to things here and you will be unable to live as a disciple of Jesus. That's what that image means. C.S. Lewis said it like this, wealth has a way of knitting a man's heart to this world. And it creates an inability, it creates a spiritual infertility for you to really be able to live your life in the kingdom of God. Verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. The one who builds up life on this earth loses it. But the one who angles everything to get eternity is the one who keeps it. It's like I told you a few weeks ago with your money. You can't take any of it with you, but you can send it on ahead, all of it. None of it you can take with you. In fact, if you're focused on things that you can only do here on earth, your, your whole soul is going to turn into salt. And your kids are going to start to drink from a salty fountain that will destroy them. He said, but if you can take your eyes off of those things, 
and you can begin to leverage your life for eternity, you become a fountain of fresh water that blesses your children and your family. And you keep your life for eternity. You can't take your money with you, but you can send it on ahead of you to enjoy it in eternity. Let me put all this together. Two qualities he's telling you to live with, right? Readiness. Readiness. The church I grew up in, man, we talked all the time about the second coming of Jesus. We had charts. <laughs> I got some of the charts. Um, and they're like, you know, got beasts drawn on them. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff we don't do but the, anymore. But there was one thing that I always remember is I remember the imminence of Jesus' return. How close it felt. In fact, I remember at six years old going outside because the preacher had said we need to watch and pray. So I went out, sat on the porch, watched and prayed. And my wife, I mean, my, wife, my mom said, what are you doing? And I said, well, the pastor told us to watch and pray. Isn't this what he meant? She was like, well, I'm not really sure, but probably not. But this is not a bad idea. So we sat and watched for 10, 15 minutes. And we prayed, and then we went back inside. There's something about the imminence of eternity that means that that's the way you should be. That's the posture you should have in your soul. He might come today. He might come today. Are you ready? It also means when you understand that, your life becomes light and mobile. Think of it like walking through a department store. You're walking through a department store, and you're seeing all the stuff you like. You don't have any money. So what you do, you, you grab everything you like, and you get in your arms, and you carry it around the store. How dumb is that, knowing that when you go out, you've got to drop it all and, and go home as empty-handed as you came? Can you take anything with you that you collect on earth? No. If you understand that, in fact, it's actually a more enjoyable experience if you don't encumber your life with all that stuff. What you can do is you can send it on ahead of you. You live light and mobile knowing that eternity is when the real, the real party is. You're not an ascetic. It's not like you hate enjoyment. You just want to enjoy it there eternally. So you leverage it down here for enjoyment there. Patience is the other thing you live with. Patience means delayed gratification. It means working faithfully even when you can't feel the outcome. This is where most of us falter. Most of us like immediate results to our obedience, don't we? I, mean, I see this all the time. People are like, oh, well, I started to do what I was supposed to do in marriage. And my wife was supposed to just immediately quit nagging me and start rubbing my feet every night. That didn't happen. What's wrong with God? I started to, I started to tithe. How come, I, how come I didn't have a rich uncle that called me out of nowhere telling me he's leaving me a million dollars? We want immediate gratification. Listen, if you are going to be able to walk with Jesus, you've got to live with patience because there is so much that will be unfulfilled and unrewarded until the second coming. And if you cannot live with patience, if you cannot live with delayed gratification, if you cannot live with faithful obedience that you don't really see a whole lot of reward for in this life, then you're never going to make it. Readiness. You've got to live with patience and you've got to live with readiness. The less real to you his coming, the more obsessed you are with the here and now. The more you succumb to temptations. The more you engage in materialism. The more you get focused on things like suffering and things that you don't have imminent expectation of the return of jesus is necessary for living as a disciple so let me play prophet here for just a minute i think this is completely absent from most churches anymore i, I think it's probably an explainable reaction to all the like goofy you know prophecy prediction kind of stuff i, I understand where it comes from but you never hear this talked about literally every book of the new testament talks about the return of Jesus and its imminence to us. The last words of Revelation, you know what they are? Last words of the last book in the Bible. Surely I'm coming quickly. John's response, even so come, Lord Jesus. The last words of the New Testament are a prayer with their face looking up toward the sky saying, even so 
come. Come. We're waiting. We're waiting. You don't hear that ever talked about. Most of us aren't even thinking about it. Here's the problem with the May 21st people. They feel like they got seven days to mess around. You're supposed to think it might happen before I get done speaking. Are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to walk into eternity? It could be today. One last warning he gives you, verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. What's his point here? It's very important. Family relationships won't save you. Being a part of the right church will save you. Because there's a couple in bed, one taken, one left. Friends won't save you. The division in God's kingdom is not between nations. It's not between people inside the church and outside the church. The division is within families, within groups of friends, in bedrooms, in dorm rooms, in this room. Two will be in the summit church. One will be taken, the other left. Are you ready? This is a question that only you can ask. How spiritual your wife is. How godly your parents are doesn't really matter. Are you ready? Can you say, come Lord Jesus. Are you ready to meet God? Are you living light and mobile, focused on eternity? That's his whole point, Luke 17. He might come today. Are you ready? Father, I pray that you would let this be real. God, there are people in this room that need to repent and trust you as their Savior. In fact, I'd even throw this out to you at all of our campuses right now. If you've never repented and believed in Jesus, this is what it sounds like, looks like. It's in your heart. Jesus, I surrender to you, all of me, completely. Jesus, I receive your offer to save me. Forgive my sins. Wash them away with your blood. Make me your child. If you've never prayed that from your heart, pray repentance and faith. I surrender, I receive. Right now, I surrender. It's not a special ceremony. It's a prayer of your heart. Jesus, I surrender to you fully. I receive your offer to save me. If you're praying that at any one of our campuses, as soon as the service is over, you find your way, come up to the campus pastor, come up to one of the people that'll be one of our prayer counselors and let them talk to you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live with this imminence of your return heavy on our minds and very present in our hearts. We pray and ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.